to Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. practically impossible to pick up a newspaper or magazine or browse the internet these days without coming across an article on the importance of a healthy microbiome. If you've been educating yourself about the microbiome, you've probably also learned that antibiotics are one of the things that can have a negative impact on it. You may have also heard that when young babies are exposed to antibiotics, it can increase their risk for eczema, allergies, and asthma in childhood, and even obesity and diabetes later in life, an issue that's gotten significant attention because of its relationship to birth by cesarean section, which keeps baby from being exposed to mom's vaginal flora during birth. So it's understandable that pregnant moms and even some healthcare professionals are concerned about antibiotic overuse particularly during pregnancy, labor, and for babies in the newborn period or early childhood. So what do you do if testing shows you have group B strep in pregnancy and are facing the decision about using antibiotics in labor called intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis, or IAP, as preventative treatment? Many women are unsure which is the greater risk. Take the chance on your baby's developing a GBS infection if you don't do the antibiotics, or take an antibiotic that can impact your baby's microbiome. This episode of Natural MD Radio, episode 130, answers the numerous questions mamas have sent me, explains what group E strep is, reviews the risks to baby if untreated, and will discuss the validity and safety of some of the common GBS testing hacks, if you will, being used in pregnancy to beat the test, as well as alternative methods of preventing and reducing GBS colonization to achieve a true negative prenatal test. GBS is a complex issue, and while I can't give you the answer to what you should do, because in truth there is no one right answer, and much of what we know about the impact of antibiotics on the infant microbiome is still emerging, my hope is to give you enough information in this very comprehensive episode to make the most educated decision possible, and also one that's within your comfort zone. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. What is GBS, and why is it important to understand? Group B streptococcus, specifically streptococcus agalactiae, also known as group B strep, or GBS for short, is one of the trillions of organisms that normally inhabit the human intestinal tract. Via migration from the intestines, it colonizes the rectum, bladder, and vaginal tracts of many women. At any given time, worldwide, as many as 30% of all people are colonized with this bacteria. While it can cause infection in people of any age, GBS doesn't seem to play a particularly beneficial role in human health, nor, when kept in check by healthy gut, vaginal, or bladder flora, does it usually cause harm to adults who are colonized with it. And in fact, most people colonized with it will never develop infection, that is, illness caused by it. So what's the fuss? In the 1970s, GBS was recognized as a leading cause of serious infection in newborns and infants. Two syndromes exist for GBS disease, early onset disease, or GBS-EOD, which occurs when baby is less than seven days old, and late onset disease, which occurs when baby is between seven and 90 days old. Either can cause pneumonia, sepsis, and meningitis, and death, though meningitis is more common with the late onset form of the disease. 
Early onset disease is the one that can be transmitted vertically, that is, from mother to baby during labor and birth, and is responsible for potentially serious adverse events in the baby, most commonly sepsis and pneumonia, and less often meningitis, which, as I mentioned, is more common with the late onset disease. We'll be focusing together today on the implications of group E strep early onset disease, the one that occurs between birth and seven days. Late onset disease develops through contact with hospital nursery personnel and usually manifests in the first three months after birth. Up to 45% of healthcare workers can carry the group B strep bacteria on their skin and transmit it to the newborn. Other sources can include members of your community who have contact with the baby. So meticulous handwashing practices in the hospital are essential for prevention of late onset disease transmission and for anyone who's going to hold baby and care for baby after birth, including friends, family members, nannies, etc. In fact, whenever I go to a friend's house who's just had a baby or as a midwife going to do a postpartum visit, the first thing I do when I walk in the house is I head straight to the nearest sink with liquid soap and wash my hands before touching anything else in the house and certainly before touching baby. What are the risks of baby developing group E strep infection and how serious is it? When a baby is exposed to GBS in labor or during the birth, he or she has a 50% chance of being colonized with GBS. Most healthy full-term babies will just develop their own colonization of the skin and gut as a result. Most babies will become colonized without developing infection. In other words, they don't get sick from it. However, a small percentage who get exposed will become infected, meaning they will get sick. The risk of a baby developing a serious, life-threatening GBS infection, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, is 1-2% to of the moms who have it during labor. Um, GBS infection in the newborn can lead to very long stays in the neonatal intensive care unit, and up to 44% of infants who survive GBS meningitis, which is infection in the brain and spinal cord, end up with long-term health problems, including developmental disabilities, paralysis, seizure disorders, hearing loss, and vision loss. Really scary stuff, though again, this complication is more common with late-onset disease. It can happen with early-onset disease. The mortality rate, or the number of babies that die among babies with group B strep early-onset disease, is 2-3% to for full-term infants. And I know that sounds really low, but as I always tell my patients, it's 100% if it's your baby, and that's something really important to consider. For premature newborns, which are babies born before 33 weeks gestation, the rate is as high as 20 to 30%. A quick look at the CDC's GBS page says an infection rate of of 0.22 per 1,000. So that's what's expected. That means with approximately 4 million births in the United States last year, we'd expect less than 1,000 early onset disease infections per year with a case fatality rate of about 2 to 3%. And that means, as it translates into real numbers, we'd expect about 25 deaths a year, even with antibiotic prevention in labor. This is in part due to false negative results that occur with testing, leading some women who are GBS positive to be untreated in labor, and in part because antibiotic prophylaxis during labor isn't 100% effective. IAP given to mothers during labor is used to prevent 
early onset disease, and I'll discuss its effectiveness in a minute. In addition to the complications that we hear about for a baby, group B strep in pregnancy can also cause some problems. It can cause bladder and uterine infections called chorioamnionitis. It can cause miscarriage, and it increases the risk of premature labor and premature rupture of membranes, as well as stillbirth. And these events are not prevented by the use of antibiotics in labor, because most of these are going to happen before labor even begins. So who gets GBS and which babies get infected? While anyone can be colonized with GBS, and again, up to 30% of people are at any given time, these factors are associated with a higher likelihood of a positive GBS test. Being under 20 years old, um, having a being a woman with multiple sexual partners, Regular tampon users have a history of having a higher rate of GBS infection, likely because of the disruption of tampons on the vaginal flora, which I'm going to talk more about the vaginal flora and its role with GBS. Having sex frequently or having sex close to the time you get tested for GBS, again, sex can change the vaginal flora, so that may have an impact. Receiving oral sex, again, changes the vaginal flora, not giving it, but receiving it, and also infrequent hand washing. So those are all some of the risk factors that make someone more likely to have a positive GBS test. While any baby can develop GBS infection if the mother is colonized, these factors increase a baby's risk. Being born prior to 37 weeks, being very low birth weight, mom having a high temperature during labor, which suggests that she might have an infection in the uterus, rupture of membranes before entering labor, a long time between when the membranes rupture and when birth actually happens, chorioamnionitis, which is an infection of the membranes surrounding the baby or the sac, intrauterine monitoring in labor. So if you have fetal scalp monitoring or intrauterine pressure monitors, and also being of African-American descent, which I'm going to talk about um, in a minute as well. Most bacterial transmission to the newborn occurs during birth through passage of the baby through the birth canal or through bacteria that ascend the birth canal when the membranes have ruptured, broken bag of waters. In one large study of 148,000 infants born between 2000 and 2008, Nearly all of the 94 infants who developed early GBS infection were diagnosed within an hour after birth, suggesting that early onset GBS infection probably begins even before birth. The increased risk I mentioned for black mothers and babies is likely in part largely due to inherent systemic racism, leading to overall mat higher maternal and infant mortality for black mothers and black babies. There is also, interestingly, some epidemiologic evidence that while lactobacillus is considered the most prominent and protective and therefore normal genus of vaginal flora in women, this is a bias, as it's true for white women, but not necessarily in black women who may have different and equally health healthy predominant species of vaginal flora, but those species may be less protective against GBS. This has not been studied or elucidated or just elaborated in the literature and really needs attention. While there have been conflicting results when studies looked at the impact of frequent vaginal exams on group B strep, early onset disease in the newborn, 
Um, these studies are really inconsistent, but overall it's shown that there's no impact from three or more vaginal exams in some studies, but other studies have shown an increase as the number of vaginal exams goes up, particularly if the mother doesn't receive antibiotics or if the membranes are ruptured. Additionally, artificial rupture of membranes might pose a slight risk. Artificial rupture of membranes is usually performed to augment or speed labor up. It can be effective for prolonged labor, even modestly reducing the need for cesarean, but like so many other procedures in labor, is overperformed, isn't always effective, and can increase a mother's risk and baby's risk of infection, which can include group B strep. If artificial rupture of membranes is recommended to speed labor up in a GBS-positive mother, it's optimal whenever possible to postpone doing it until antibiotics have been given with an appropriate four hours of time to prevent early onset disease in the baby. And also, vaginal exams should be minimized to only what are needed, not frequent routine checks. So let's turn our attention to group E strep testing. Is it recommended and is it reliable? Group B strep testing was first initiated in the early 1990s, and from, and from 2002 through early 2020, it's been recommended that pregnant women be tested for GBS between 35 and 37 weeks of pregnancy. As of early 2020, though, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, or ACOG, now states that the best time to check for GBS is between the 36th and 37th week of pregnancy. Testing at this time is thought to provide better coverage for women who don't go into labor until their 41st week. The test consists of obtaining a bacterial culture of a sample collected from a vaginal and rectal swab. This is usually done by your obstetrician, family doctor, or midwife. However, a recent study shows that women can self-test equally as effectively with a little bit of instruction. So if you're not comfortable having your provider do the swab, you can request instructions and go on and do it in your, you know, on yourself in the exam room. Studies suggest that group B strep positive cultures have a high degree of accuracy in predicting group B strep colonization status at birth if cultures are collected within five weeks of birth and if test results are positive. A negative test, however, does not mean you don't have the colonization. It could be what's called a false negative, meaning that the test missed the group B strep organisms. In fact, two-thirds of cases of group B strep early onset disease are now the result of false negatives in pregnancy, meaning mom had the colonization, her test came back negative, so she didn't get treated. You can also become colonized after the test was done, so while your test could have been negative in pregnancy, you could in fact be positive at the time of labor. An FDA-approved rapid test can diagnose GBS in pregnant women in about an hour. It's currently used only in labor when a woman's GBS status isn't known and testing needs to be done rapidly for medical reasons. For example, there's premature rupture of membranes. Some studies have shown the test to be up to 91% sensitive, even more so than the 36-37 week culture, which catches about 69% of cases. More research on the pros and cons of switching to rapid testing is needed, as it could potentially be a shift in current practice to a new and better practice. 
Groupie strep is also found in the urine of 2 to 7% of pregnant women. A positive urine test for groupie strep is considered a marker of heavy rectal and vaginal colonization in the mother and is a risk factor for groupie strep early onset disease in the newborn. That's why it's considered an indication for antibiotic use in labor and actually precludes the need for even testing at 36 to 37 weeks. Antibiotic treatment of groupie strep bacteriuria, which is what is called when you have bacteria in your urine, during pregnancy doesn't eliminate GBS from the genitourinary and gastrointestinal tracts. And so just getting treated if you have a, a UTI during pregnancy, for example, or if you have it in your urine, doesn't preclude the use of antibiotics during labor. So if it does happen that you have GBS in your urine and you get treated during pregnancy for it because you have an actual UTI, it's still recommended that you get treated in labor if you had GBS in your urine at any time during the pregnancy. Because group B strep resistance to specific antibiotics has developed, especially to those used for penicillin-allergic women, culture and sensitivity testing is strongly recommended as part of the testing process. Now, some women ask me, can't I just skip the test to avoid getting the, lab- the antibiotics during labor? Skipping the test to avoid a positive result is one strategy, and it's certainly within your legal right to do so. But here's the thing, and this is how I think about it. If you don't know whether you're positive and you're having your baby in the hospital or have to transport from a home birth to the hospital and you have any risk factors for GBS, including early broken waters, prolonged broken waters for more than 18 to 24 hours, or an elevated temperature, you're still going to be prescribed the antibiotic. On the other hand, if you've been tested and have gotten a negative test result, then the antibiotic isn't indicated and you're sort of in the clear from the decision. So having a negative test result can actually be an advantage and put your mind at ease if you're worried about being GBS positive. Further, if you are positive and know it, you can get educated about your decision And you'll also be more likely to be mindful of positive signs of GBS in the baby should you forgo the antibiotics. So while I'm not saying everyone should get testing, simply declining the test in order to avoid knowing the results isn't necessarily more effective for avoiding the the antibiotic in labor. And in my recommendation, I do think it's beneficial for everyone to get tested. When I say I'm not saying everyone should, I'm, I'm not telling you that what you should do. I'm just saying I think that universal testing makes sense for all of these reasons. It's sort of the same with gaming the test by using natural treatments for a few weeks before the test to achieve a negative result. You might have just reduced the colonization so that it was low enough to give you a negative, but you might still be colonized at the time of birth and not know it. Some women have raised the fact that not all countries test routinely, and that's true. The United Kingdom National Screening Committee, for example, states that pregnant people in the UK should not be screened for groupie strep. But the UK follows what's called the risk-based approach. This includes giving antibiotics in labor to all women who have fever, prolonged rupture of membranes more than 18 hours, groupie strep in their urine at any time during pregnancy, preterm labor, or a prior infant with groupie strep. So at the end of the day, the data shows that about the same number, which is about 30% of all laboring women, are going to receive antibiotics in labor either way. What if I test positive, but later a test comes back negative? When it comes to groupie strep infection in pregnancy, here's the rule. Once you test positive in that pregnancy, even if you test later, 
negative later in the same pregnancy, you're still considered to be positive and antibiotic treatment is recommended by the CDC. If you are negative in this pregnancy, but were positive in a previous pregnancy, you don't automatically require antibiotics unless your previous baby developed group B strep infection, in which case then antibiotics in labor are recommended. So while you might use natural approaches to try to reduce your colonization, if you've had a positive test, if you're having your baby in a hospital or birthing center, the standard protocol is still going to be to give you antibiotics Even if you test positive, do a bunch of treatments, you know, naturally, then test again and you're negative. Once you're positive in this pregnancy, you're positive. It's therefore, if you're going to use natural strategies to reduce colonization and hopefully achieve a negative pregnancy, a negative GBS test, rather than have a positive result and then try to retreat and retest, you want to do the strategies to prevent the, to reduce the colonization and therefore have a true negative test. What is the treatment if you do test GBS positive and is it recommended for you? Well, here's the bottom line. Universal prophylaxis with IV antibiotics, usually penicillin or ampicillin, or an alternative for penicillin allergic women is recommended if you meet any of these criteria. If you test group E strep in your urine during this pregnancy. If you had a previous baby, again, not previous pregnancy, but a previous baby with group B strep infection. If your vaginal rectal cultures at 36 weeks and zero days through 36 weeks and six out of seven days, so from the beginning of the 36th week to the end of the 37th week, which is when it's recommended, if those cultures are positive for GBS, then it's recommended that you get antibiotics unless you have a cesarean before you go into labor and before your bag of waters broke. So in other words, your bag of waters was intact at the time of cesarean. It's recommended that women receive four or more hours of antibiotics in labor for maximum effectiveness in preventing infection in baby. However, recent studies have shown that two hours of antibiotic exposure has been shown to reduce GBS vaginal colony counts and decrease the frequency of neonatal sepsis. So it's not as effective as four hours, but if for some reason you're having a fast labor, um, you haven't gotten them during labor at a home birth or birthing center, and now you come to hospital and you only get two hours before baby comes, that's still considered helpful, not quite as effective, but still good. Um, Antibiotics in labor are also recommended if your prenatal GBS culture result is unknown when labor starts. So you never got tested or let's say your test results got lost and nobody ever told you. But if you have the following risks, um, these are higher risks for your baby developing group E strep early onset disease. So if your cultures are unknown, you haven't had the test or you just don't know, and you have these risk factors then antibiotics are highly recommended for you in labor. The risk factors include preterm birth, so you go into preterm labor, preterm pre-labor rupture of membranes, rupture of membranes for 18 hours or more at full term. You have a fever in labor, which is a temperature of 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or 38 degrees Celsius or higher, or you had GBS colonization in a previous pregnancy. So I'm gonna repeat that one more time. If you were colonized in a previous pregnancy and you have a negative test result this pregnancy, you don't automatically need antibiotics in labor. If you had a previous 
baby with infection from GBS, then it's automatically recommended that you get antibiotics during this labor. And if you had GBS colonization in a previous pregnancy, but you don't know what your status is this time, then it's recommended. If you have a GBS positive prenatal culture, but you have a cesarean before you go into labor with intact membranes at the start of the cesarean, even with these risk factors, you don't require group B strep antibiotic prophylaxis. So I guess that begs the question, well, how effective is antibiotic prophylaxis in labor if it's being so highly recommended? Overall, IAP has been highly effective for reducing the numbers of newborns that develop group B strep early onset disease. If a group B strep positive woman is treated with antibiotics during labor, her infant's risk of developing early onset group B strep infection decreases by 80%. So for example, the risk would drop from 1% theoretically down to 0.2%. As a result of routine testing in pregnancy and treatment protocols using antibiotics given to positive moms during labor that began in 2002, the rate of early onset infection decreased from 1.7 cases per 1,000 live births in 1993 to 0.22 cases per 1,000 live births as of of 2016. Now, there has been some controversy around the validity of the testing based on three Cochrane database reports that said that the three old tests that existed were kind of weak. However, there have been new tests that have been done. In fact, one major study really did show reduction in early onset disease. And Rebecca uh, Drecker over at Evidence Data Uh, based birth, did a nice review of the Cochrane database uh, controversy, showing that even though those were smaller and weaker studies, they still do show validity of reduction of early onset disease with antibiotics. Those of you who follow me and have have, really followed my work know that one of my big platforms is reducing unnecessary antibiotic exposure. But keep in mind that unnecessary antibiotic exposure, which is truly about 70% of the antibiotics that are prescribed are considered to be unnecessary. That's different than appropriate antibiotic prescribing. And this is a case where I do consider this to be still a personal choice, whether you want to get it or not, but actually appropriate antibiotic prescribing. Now, one big question, of course, this also now leads to is, well, will antibiotics in labor harm your baby's microbiome? There is evidence from a number of studies demonstrating that the use of antibiotics during pregnancy and during labor and birth can affect the microbiome of your baby. For example, in one study of 52 newborns, half of whose mothers received antibiotic prophylaxis for GBS in labor, and half of the mothers didn't because they were negative for GBS, there were decreases in the beneficial flora, especially bifidobacterium, in the babies of the mothers who did receive antibiotics. But how this links to long-term health impacts isn't fully well understood. Some studies show that the newborn microbiome changes that we see with antibiotics during labor resolve within two months. Evidence to date suggests that the use of antibiotics for less than 24 hours during labor is not a source of long-term microbiome damage, nor of later risk of eczema. And additional studies show that short-term damage can be mitigated by breastfeeding and possibly also the use of antibiotics given to the newborn. 
One study of over 4,800 Canadian women found no association between childhood obesity and group B strep antibiotic exposure during labor. However, greater than 24 hours of antibiotic exposure in labor was associated in an increase in eczema at two years of age. One study by Azad et al., done in 2016, found that while, yes, at three months old, there were differences between the microbiomes of babies who had versus who had not been exposed to antibiotics, breastfeeding was a very important factor in normalizing the microbiome. Babies exposed to antibiotics and who were exclusively breastfed for at least three months had more similar microbiomes to those not exposed to antibiotics than babies who had been exposed but were not exclusively breastfed. Some babies did have persistent changes even at one year after birth, after which the microbiome of babies tends to become similar regardless of the type of birth or whether antibiotics were used or not. While this is overall reassuring, it doesn't take into account the impact of microbiome alterations in the first year of life on the development of the immune, digestive, or nervous systems. Thus, much more research is needed to be able to compare the long-term health effects of these early microbiome perturbations. Overall, my review of the literature suggests that antibiotics used IV during labor by the mother can impact the baby's microbiome unfavorably. However, it appears that if antibiotics are used for less than 24 hours, the risk is short-term. If baby is breastfed, ideally for six months, the risk is mitigated, but certainly full-time breast, uh, you know, exclusive breastfeeding for three months. And it's also possible to give baby an infant probiotic that might also prevent some of the potential impact of microbiome disruption. For example, allergies and asthma that have been associated with antibiotic use in pregnancy. Cesarean birth seems to compound the risk of antibiotics and um, if used during labor, as baby is not also receiving exposure to the immune-enhancing flora that would naturally occur during vaginal birth. In these babies, not only are there deficits in healthy microbial species and diversity, but overall of pathogenic organisms, including Clostridium, Enterococcus, and Streptococcus, have all been found to be overgrown and have been measured in stool. In babies born by cesarean, while there is also antibiotic exposure through mom, a probiotic given to baby has been shown in some studies to prevent atopic conditions, that's allergy, asthma, and eczema, and is something I also recommend in my medical practice when mothers had antibiotics for labor or GBS. Bottom line is that I consider the typically recommended use of antibiotics for GBS to be low risk for the baby's long-term microbiome health as long as the baby is breastfed overall, regardless of the benefits in terms of, and overall, um, regardless, I still think that the benefits of GBS prevention of early onset disease really does appear to outweigh the risks to the baby's microbiome. Adverse events from antibiotics are overall, though, thought to be poorly documented. All medications carry risk of adverse events. The greatest risks with GBS prophylaxis are an antibiotic reaction in the mother and potential to develop a yeast infection after birth, so a vaginal yeast infection or nipple infection or thrush in the newborn, um, which can cause nipple pain, cracking, and bleeding, having a harmful effect on your breastfeeding experience. Allergic reactions can generally be prevented by making sure you're getting the appropriate antibiotic for you, particularly if you're penicillin allergic, 
or if you've had a prior reaction to specific antibiotics. Taking a probiotic starting in pregnancy, or if you've not, immediately postpartum to support your gut health and vaginal and skin flora may prevent thrush and other yeast infections, which according to one study occur in 15% of women receiving GBS antibiotics in labor, more than double the rate of women who don't receive the antibiotics. While many women are concerned about having to be immobilized during labor to receive the antibiotics, in fact, you can receive them over about 35 minutes via an IV and only need to be Those only need to be repeated about every four hours during labor. You can move around while receiving the IV and have the IV drip disconnected between doses and the IV port saline or heparin locked, so you can just move around and do your thing. Now, another question I get from mamas is, can I decline the antibiotics and what are the risks of doing so? First of all, all women choosing to birth at home. For many women, the use of antibiotics in labor may not be a realistic option because in many states, home birth midwives don't administer IV medications. So home birth and midwives in this situation often use the risk assessment model that I mentioned earlier that's still used in Europe, used in the UK, and then um, actually was originally used in the US until the universal treatment of all women who meet the criteria was switched to. So if you're birthing at home and your midwife can't give you IV antibiotics, then the risk assessment uh, model would suggest after a rupture of membranes more than 18 to 24 hours uh, or any signs whatsoever of infection um, within any time frame, then you would absolutely go to the hospital and get antibiotics. If you're having your baby in the hospital, you do have the right to decline antibiotics in labor, and you should legally not be bullied, harassed, or coerced in any way, including with the threat of social services being called on you. The right to informed refusal is codified in the ACOG Refusal of Medically Recommended Treatment During Pregnancy Document. Now, all of the research that I'm sharing with you and all of the links to the research, as well as a full references... And the link to this document, the ACOG Refusal of Medically Recommended Treatment During Pregnancy, are all available for you in a written form of this podcast. So I've created also a blog that accompanies this episode. You can access that by going to avivaram.com forward slash 130, the numbers 130. So again, that's avivaram.com forward slash 130. So you can... You don't have to memorize anything I'm telling you. You can keep going back and looking at this for reference. If you do decline to get the antibiotics, while there is an overall very low likelihood, like a 1% to 2% chance that your baby would develop early onset GBS infection, it's important to know that the risk is about five times higher than if you did receive the antibiotics. So this is really important to, you know, make your decision based on full information. I have also seen a few situations that have gotten legally complicated. And even though this is is legally not supposed to happen, I have seen situations in hospital where social work has been called to assess for negligence and child abuse when parents declined antibiotic prophylaxis in labor. And one case where the parents were forced to let the baby be given the antibiotic after birth since the mom had declined to receive the antibiotic in labor, 
even though baby had no signs of infection. While hopefully you would not be met by that kind of a vitriolic response by your care provider or hospital management team, and it's really important to have these discussions ahead of time, I don't want you to be surprised, you know, if something just so off the wall happened like that, but keep in mind that the OB and the pediatric system can be very, very legalistic. That's why it's incredibly important to have that document that I mentioned, the ACOG informed refusal document with you in labor, regardless whether you're GBS positive or negative, it applies to all things. As the mom, you have the sole legal right to make decisions not only for your own body, but for your baby's body too. So for everything that happens to you and everything that happens to your baby. And that document states that you should not be harassed, bullied, or threatened, including with social services or threat of losing your baby in some way, you know, your baby being taken from you or not being given to you to hold um, because of a decision you make. I talk about this at length also in the free uh, childbirth classes I'm giving. It's, it's over at hashtag I deserve birth support on Facebook. Those are going to be free through the um, middle of September 2020, after which there's going to be a fabulous, very accessible, very affordable, new and exciting membership, um, which will give you access to literally dozens of um, mini pregnancy, birth, postpartum courses, new mama courses, and newborn care courses. But for now, if you want to learn more about your advocacy rights, and, you're, and how to self-advocate, go to hashtag I deserve birth support on Facebook. That's different than hashtag I deserve birth support on Instagram. And it's actually the hashtag itself. It's not, I'm not spelling it. I'm not spelling out the word hashtag. Um, the one on Instagram is a place to share your beautiful birth stories, your challenging birth stories, your pregnancy pictures, your birth pictures, anything you'd like. So it's important to be fully aware of the risks of group B strep before choosing to pass on the antibiotic prophylaxis. There is also no natural substitute for antibiotics in women who are GBS positive with signs of infection and prolonged rupture of membranes. All moms who have symptoms of infection in labor should be treated with antibiotics, and all newborns that have signs of GBS infection must receive immediate and aggressive antibiotic therapy. Keep in mind that if you decline in labor and are GBS positive, there may be some pressure, hopefully not, to give your baby antibiotics after birth if baby has even the slightest fever or the slightest anything looking irregular. If your baby is otherwise healthy and full term, however, and you didn't receive antibiotics in labor, no additional or special monitoring aside from the usual care and attention given to your baby is needed. Baby shouldn't be separated for you, from you as long as baby is otherwise healthy, well, and full term. However, I do recommend paying close attention during the first 48 hours. Remember from the study I shared earlier, most babies who develop group E strep early onset disease were diagnosed within an hour after the birth. If your baby does develop any unusual symptoms, fever, listlessness, difficulty breathing, or any symptoms of group E strep early onset disease, it's important to let your care providers know that you tested positive for GBS in pregnancy. And if you didn't accept antibiotics, let them know that too, so they know best how to evaluate and treat your baby if a workup and medical care is needed. A really common question is, are there alternatives to antibiotics in labor? And a lot of women have heard about the use of chlorhexidine or hibiclens. 
an alternative treatment to IV antibiotics that's been investigated in Europe and in resource-poor countries, but not used in the U.S. other than sometimes by home birth midwives, is the use of chlorhexidine. It's also called Hibiclens in the U.S. It's a topical antiseptic solution that does kill GBS when you clean surfaces with it. While some studies have shown that chlorhexidine does reduce neonatal colonization and infection compared with when compared with uh, conventional antibiotic treatment, other studies have shown only a reduction in colonization, but not in the rates of early onset GBS infection. The most recent review by the Cochrane database in 2014 concludes that there's no differences in rates of group B strep infection with chlorhexidine use compared with non-use, so it doesn't do anything, according to this latest review. The only possible effective protocol, which should be reserved for use only in resource-poor countries where there is lack of access to antibiotics, is possibly a combination of vaginal chlorhexidine washes and then also washing the new baby, the newborn off with chlorhexidine. That is just not something I recommend at all. I mean, it's going to also wipe out healthy vaginal flora. It's going to wipe out the baby's good skin flora as well. More investigation of this approach is definitely important and needed. And it's an, it's an easy-to-use option in environments where there is no antibiotics, but otherwise for the U.S., I really I don't recommend it as a, an alternative to antibiotics in labor or as a way to hack the test to reduce colonization before you go. And you're just kind of wiping out what's there literally with this wash or this wipe, and um, it doesn't reduce the incidence of infection in the baby. So, well, then can you use anything natural to prevent group B strep? Really common questions I get are, are there natural things I can do to test negative for GBS during pregnancy? Can GBS colonization be prevented and treated naturally? And the answer is yes. There do seem to be some things you can do based on the research evidence, and there are definitely things that my clients and patients have done over the years and seemingly effectively. A healthy microbiome, to me, is the most important natural defense against group B strep. New research is regularly being published on the role of a healthy vaginal and gut microbiome in preventing vaginal infections in general, and that the presence or absence of certain vaginal microbiome microorganisms may prevent or contribute to the likelihood of group E strep colonization. So some prevent it, some may, um, when the vaginal flora is disrupted, may actually allow for GBS growth. Microbiome status during pregnancy has been found to reduce or conversely contribute to, depending on the flora, the likelihood of miscarriage, preterm labor, vaginal and bladder infections during labor. So addressing vaginal microbiome health during pregnancy has been part of my prenatal protocols for the past 10 years or so. When my textbook, Botanical Medicine for Women's Health, was originally published in 2009, the research was nearly absent, and talking about the microbiome was completely fringe. The evidence to support this approach now continues to grow, but more research is absolutely warranted. Steps I take to support a healthy microbiome for my mamas in my practice include recommending that they eliminate processed sugar and all processed junk foods from the diet because these have actually been shown to disrupt 
the gut microbiome. And remember, a disrupted gut microbiome can lead to a disrupted bladder and vaginal microbiome. I encourage them to increase their leafy greens and other fruits and vegetables to ensure eight saving servings a day. That is both helpful for immunity and for the tissues of the body themselves, but also to get adequate fiber, which is really important for gut health. I encourage them to take a prenatal vitamin to make sure they're getting all the nutrients they need, especially zinc, vitamin D, vitamin A, and vitamin C to keep immunity healthy and boosted, to reduce stress, which can be done through meditation, journaling, getting a massage, and other relaxing activities because high stress impairs immunity, it impairs the gut, and it impairs gut health. I encourage mamas to eat lacto-fermented foods as part of their daily diet. So sauerkraut, kimchi, or if you tolerate yogurt, yogurt is a great option. If you don't eat dairy, you can eat non-dairy forms of yogurt like uh, coconut yogurt, which also have some of those good flora that, that they've been made with. So really, really helpful still. And then I highly recommend the use of oral and sometimes also vaginal probiotics throughout the pregnancy for women at higher risk if you've had group B strep colonization in a prior pregnancy, if you've had frequent urinary tract or vaginal infections, for example, yeast infections or bacterial vaginosis, if you have a history of preterm labor or early rupture of membranes, if you meet any of these criteria, then I recommend definitely doing a vaginal and consider, I mean, an oral and consider also doing a vaginal probiotic. And I'll tell you how to do that in just a minute. Now, if you meet the criteria for an antibiotic in labor. This doesn't change your status. Using a probiotic and reducing colonization doesn't mean that you're not still a, supposed to get antibiotics in labor. Remember, once you test positive for it, you've bought yourself the antibiotic train ticket. Of course, it's still your personal choice, but that's going to be what's recommended for you. Therefore, since the probiotic use can reduce the colonization by improving the flora. So it's not like just a quick fix, like using like what I mentioned with the chlorhexidine, you can use it, but then the groupie strep colonization may come right back and baby can still get early onset disease. The same can be the case with groupie strep and using probiotics. But the difference here is that the probiotics are actually shifting the vaginal flora, the bladder flora, the gut flora to healthy flora and thereby reducing the actual colonization of groupie strep. So what you want to do is start taking this possibly first trimester if you're higher risk, certainly by second trimester if you're higher risk, and definitely if you want to have a, a negative test and avoid the risk of being more likely to have groupie strep colonization, start using the oral, oral probiotic at the beginning of the third trimester. Most of my uh, patients in my practice, they will start the probiotic during the first trimester. It's considered very safe. They're very well tolerated. But if someone comes to me later in pregnancy, even if they come to me third trimester, I have them start the probiotic then. So how do you use a probiotic prenatally? And why? Like, what, what are the real benefits? Many species of lactobacillus have been shown to be beneficial to the vaginal flora. These include lactobacillus ruteri and lactobacillus rhamnosus. Remember, these are all available for you at avivaram.com forward slash 130. You don't have to remember these names. Those are two species that are known to be especially helpful for supporting healthy vaginal and bladder flora. 
while these and others, including Lactobacillus crispatus and Lactobacillus salivarius strains, have been shown to inhibit the growth of vaginal pathogens, including Gardnerella and Candida, which is yeast, and also reducing the frequency of bladder infections in addition to vaginal infections. The reductions of yeast infections is actually also important. A 2020 study found that the presence of yeast, especially Candida albicans vaginally, promotes that bladder colonization of group E strep, which if you recall, is considered an indication for treatment with antibiotics in labor. Now, not all studies have conclusively shown positive effects in reducing group E strep colonization in pregnancy. Some have been shown successfully, though, to specifically inhibit group E strep, and it seems that this happens through a variety of mechanisms, including reducing the number of group E strep um, organisms present by changing the vaginal pH to one that's inhospitable to that bacteria, and also by reducing the ability of group E strep to adhere to the vaginal lining. In one study, 110 pregnant women at 35 to 37 weeks of pregnancy who were diagnosed with GBS by culture as being GBS positive for both vaginal and rectal colonization were randomly assigned to be orally treated with two placebo capsules or two probiotic capsules, in this case containing L-rhamnosis and L-ruteri. L stands for lactobacillus. And they were given these before bed until the time of birth. All women were tested for vaginal and rectal GBS colonization again by GBS culture on admission for birth. Of the 99 who completed the study, 49 in the probiotic group and 50 in the placebo group, the GBS colonization results changed from positive to negative in 21 women in the probiotic group. So that's 42.9% of the women and only nine in the placebo group, so that was 18% during that time. The researchers concluded that an oral probiotic containing L-rhamnosis and L-ruteri could reduce the vaginal and rectal GBS colonization rate in pregnancy. In another study involving 57 healthy pregnant women, Lactobacillus salivarius was taken daily by the 25 group E strep positive women in the group from 26 to 38 weeks of pregnancy. At the end of the trial, which was week 38, 72% and 68% of the women were GBS negative in the rectal and vaginal samples respectively. The researchers concluded that this seemed to be an efficient method to reduce the number of GBS positive women during pregnancy, decreasing the number of women receiving antibiotic treatment during labor and birth. In yet another small clinical trial, researchers randomly assigned healthy, fertile, non-pregnant women to wear panty liners that were impregnated with the probiotic species L. plantarum, or to wear placebo panty liners. The results showed that it is possible to transfer probiotics to the labial folds and vagina using the panty liners. The researchers also found that people who had high levels of lactobacilli in the vagina had lower levels of GBS. They concluded that high numbers of lactobacilli may contribute to a low vaginal pH and seem to have an influence to reduce group B strep. Now keep in mind, what I said earlier was that this may be different for women of African descent who aren't necessarily all going to have predominant lactobacillus natural colonization. It doesn't mean that this approach won't help and isn't absolutely recommended, 
but it means we also need more studies. And these studies also, in this case, would be beneficial to disclose the um, profiles of the uh, women who were studied so that we could know, well, was this all white women? Was this all Latino women? Was this all, uh, did this study include any women of African descent so that we would know whether this was effective? Further, use of antibiotics in labor doesn't prevent, as I shared with you earlier, other prenatal risks associated with GBS. So getting, waiting to get antibiotics in labor isn't going to do anything to prevent GBS-related miscarriages, preterm births, and stillbirths. It also doesn't guarantee group B strep eradication and can lead to antibiotic-resistant group B strep. And even though the risks seem tolerable and micro disruption, microbiome disruption in the newborn short term, both can occur. So overall, given the potentially beneficial and protective effects of probiotics against urinary tract infections, preterm labor, and also protection of the baby's microbiome when taken by the pregnant mom, it seems reasonable, regardless of whether you're going to accept antibiotics in labor or not, if you turn out to be group B strep positive, to go ahead and use a probiotic during pregnancy and to try to use this for prevention of group E strep colonization in mom so you can reduce the need for pro antibiotics in labor. I recommend one to two capsules of a probiotic containing at least 10 million colony forming units to be taken orally daily during pregnancy and especially in the third trimester, not just to prevent group E strep, but because it also has been shown to reduce the risk of allergies, eczema, and asthma in children when taken by mom in the last third of the pregnancy, and especially for those mamas who may have a cesarean, which is also 30% of women, those babies get a little bit extra protection. And also for mamas in my practice hoping, hoping to prevent group E strep positive testing by reducing their colonization, um, I also recommend inserting one capsule vaginally nightly before bed during the third trimester up until the time of testing. This is completely safe and is also another way that probiotics are used medically to help reduce bladder and vaginal infections. And as I mentioned, probiotics in pregnancy, the species that I'm talking about, have been found to be very safe. Now, you may be wondering, where on earth do I get these weird species? Where do I get L. ruteri and L. crispatus and L. rhamnosus and L. salivarius and all of these, right? Where do you get them? L. plantarum. A lot of probiotics actually contain these. So if you look for a predominantly lactobacillus containing probiotic, it will contain them. Even some yogurt may contain them. I also make available on my website over at avivaram.com. If you go to the main homepage of my website and you look in the navigation tab under more for you, you're going to see replenish supplements or supplement store or something like that. If you go into my formulary by setting up an account, which is totally free to do, you will find a probiotic that is a company called Integrative Therapeutics. It's called Women's Pro Flora. That has the rhamnosus and the ruteri, and it's the one that I use in my practice. Now, I am not trying to sell you supplements that I sell. This is an independent company that you go to that maintains a formulary that I use in my medical practice for my friends and family, and which you can use at 20% off 
of a, a constant discount. If you go to that page on my website, you'll also see that the um, money you spend, any profits that would come back to me, are money that is diverted into programs and scholarships for those working professionally and diligently to reduce maternal mortality for all moms, but also especially for um, Black, Indigenous women of color. So if you're going to get supplements, you can get them from there. You can find this one that I use in my practice. There's also one called Claire Therbiotic Infant, which is the one that I give to newborns. I just have mom um, put it on her finger and put it in her baby's mouth. Of course, clean hands, Put it, make a little paste, put it in baby's mouth. Baby can suck it off your finger or you can use a little eyedropper. Um, but that's one way to get the probiotics that I feel confident enough that I, again, personally use those in my family, friends, and practice. You can get them other places like Amazon, Whole Foods. The ones at Whole Foods are generally going to be a good quality. The ones on Amazon, I really wouldn't trust only because Amazon itself at some point in the last um, two years published an article on how they couldn't even verify the authenticity and effectiveness um, of their of their supplements that many of them might be counterfeit. So those are some variety of options for you. If you have a, a midwife, a physician, naturopath, they can also access really good quality products for you. What about using garlic or essential oils vaginally? Garlic has been used as an antimicrobial for millennia, and research does support its antibiotic effects. There's a lot of debate over the effectiveness and even the safety of using garlic as a vaginal suppository for the treatment of vaginal yeast infection and also for group B strep prevention. For example, on her website, one well-known childbirth educator posits that there's a risk of rupture of membranes from its use. However, to my knowledge and research, including as the author of the primary textbook available on women's herbal medicine, I was able to find no evidence of harm and sig no significance, uh, no evidence of harm, no evidence of rupture membranes, anything like that. But there is significant empirical evidence of use by midwives around the United States, and I myself have used this in my medical and midwifery practice for decades. That said, there's no evidence of safety or efficacy for the prevention of groupie strep infection, so it's a personal decision as to whether this is something you would consider. If you test positive, again, this is not something that you would use in lieu of, of antibiotics. It's not going to guarantee that you've reduced your colonization. The traditional use is to insert a single clove, not a bulb, a clove of carefully peeled garlic into the vagina each night. You use your finger, your index finger to push it in about two or three inches. This is really important. Somebody just told me recently that their midwife told them to peel and then cut the garlic in half and put that cut in half garlic into the vagina. That will cause terrible inflammation, irritation, burning, and inflammation and irritation in the vagina itself is a risk factor for vaginal dysbiosis, disruption in the vaginal microflora ecosystem, which could add to your risk of groupie strep, not actually reduce it. So you want that to be not nicked or damaged. You want it to be a whole closed clove of garlic, but the paper peeled off of it. One way to um, do this is to dip the, uh, dip the garlic in olive oil also before you insert it. Clean olive oil, just put a little bit in a bowl, put a little on the garlic and insert it. 
and that helps it slide in, but also provides a little bit of protective coating. You then have to reach in with your finger and remove it the next day. It might not just fall out and it may be covered in like a very mucousy coating. This is alternated with a soothing herbal suppository nightly, and you do this for two to three weeks prior to groupie strep testing if your goal is to reduce local colonization and to also heal vaginal tissue if there's any inflammation or irritation. Now, this is done in conjunction with the daily oral probiotic. This is not instead of. The, or, the daily oral probiotic to me is a really um, worthwhile and um, likely effective strategy. This is a traditional strategy which does have empirical effectiveness, but no science behind it to prove that it works for GBS. Science to prove that garlic is antimicrobial and a small amount of science that when you put garlic onto groupie strep in a Petri dish, it'll kill it, but not that it translates to clinical use in human bodies. Essential oils have also long had a history of use for treating bacterial infections, including vaginal infections, and also have a lot of evidence behind them in vitro, so in petri dishes, as antimicrobials. And herbal suppositories can be beneficial. Clinically, I have found them to be. But while the suppositories themselves are safe and the herbs are known to be effective for many of these organisms, there's only a sparse amount of evidence supporting their effectiveness in the human body and none for treating or preventing groupie strep. So in my practice... I do include them if I'm want if a mama is wanting to reduce GBS colonization, but again, it's not a substitute for medical treatment if you do test positive in spite of treatment prior to the test and it's not meant to treat GBS in lieu of antibiotics in labor if you have had a positive test prior to starting treatment, though it's reasonable to use to attempt to reduce colonization um, if you're interested in taking that strategy. As with garlic, there's no evidence of safety or efficacy with this approach. Um, again, a great deal of empirical use. So something I share along with the garlic in the interest of democratizing information. One risk that it's really important to consider is that in using the garlic or in using the suppositories, just like with the Hibiclens, you temporarily reduce colonization and you're able to achieve a negative test, but it's possible that bacterial levels will creep back up and then you wouldn't know whether your GBS colonized or not. In contrast, the use of probiotics, again, does improve the vaginal flora over time in a way that can abate or eliminate colonization. So if you've been using a probiotic and you test negative, in my opinion, you know the, the test is only as good as the 69% that the test catches but it's a reasonable strategy. Of course, it's best to discuss any of these alternative approaches, including the probiotic, with your midwife or physician prior to use. So over at avivaram.com forward slash 130, I give you a recipe for a vaginal suppository that you can make at home if it's something that you would like to add to your protocol. One popular remedy called colloidal silver I strongly recommend against. It's commonly used by midwives. There are a lot of claims about its ability, ability to prevent and cure all manner of infections. It has no traditional use, and colloidal silver has not been proven safe and effective, and taken orally can have toxic effects. Vaginal mucosa is highly absorptive, so I really recommend against it, even though I know it's popular among certain midwives. 
1999, the FDA also warned that colloidal silver isn't safe or effective for treating any disease or condition, and that it can cause argyria, which is a bluish-gray discoloration of the skin, which is usually permanent. All right, let's bring this home. I really want to end by saying if you need or choose an antibiotic in labor, it's okay. Chances are, if you're following me, you're looking into what I'm doing and recommending, it's because you are looking for an alternative. And as I said, I am the first one to be on the bandwagon, you know, on that soapbox about reducing unnecessary antibiotic exposure. And we do need to be concerned about the health of our baby's microbiomes. It's not ideal to give our babies an antibiotic as part of their welcome to the world. But they do play a really important role in preventing serious infections. And prevention in this case can mean preventing drastic consequences. Further, it does appear to mitigate the impact. Further, uh, it does appear that you can mitigate the impact of antibiotics by breastfeeding and possibly giving baby a probiotic daily for the first three to six months after birth. It's important to make the decision that you feel most comfortable with, that you can really live with, and that's best for your baby and not feel swayed by any pressures to avoid antibiotics because of the desire to go all natural. There's an appropriate time and place for most things. And while right now the jury is still out on the severity of the implications of giving antibiotics to newborns newborns via mom or directly, um, it would not be inappropriate to make that choice at all and to decide to use an antibiotic in labor. I wish you a healthy pregnancy, birth, and baby, and peace of mind in your decisions. Aviva Ram, over and out for episode 130 of Natural MD Radio, and I will see you next week. hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.